Hello, hello, and welcome to the Nightlamp podcast, episode number four. You're with me, Stefan Friedrich, and my colleague Adela Holmes. Hello. And uh, Adela and I work at uh, work with Nightlamp, uh, and you can see all about our services, which are all centred on developmental trauma and trauma informed practice at nightlamp.org. And uh, ha- how are you going, Adela? Well, I'm very well, thank you. And um, yet again, you know, we've been scouring all the available sources for something that we want to talk about on this podcast. But today, it's not me who's come up with it. No, this it's time... Stefan. One fell in my lap, and uh, my, my good friend Marv, actually... Have I ever told you about my good friend, Marv? No, you haven't. Well, we've been friends for a long, long time. And when I was 18 and at university, we lived together mm. in this uh, kind of haunted house mm. in Geelong. And I went to Deakin University and my mate, Marv, was an electrical apprentice. Um, Anyway, he's, he's a good, good friend, very smart man. And actually, he once took a week off to attend university with me because mm. he was concerned about me. I went through a difficult time. <laughs> and he actually came into every one of my classes. To make sure you attended? Well, just to hang out, yeah. just, to be, just to be close by because he's a good mate. And he was the one electrician apprentice who sat in on one of my philosophy classes, which was a unit on Jean-Paul Sartre and existentialism. And uh, he did... Gee, you must have found that interesting. Yeah, he did. But actually, I do remember him very clearly um, actually speaking that class, putting up his hand and saying, I call bullshit on Jean-Paul Sartre. <laughs> <laughs> and afterwards there ensured great conversation. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we're still very good friends, and he sent me an article that he found, and I thought this might be an interesting topic, Mm. because the article was about, spoke about different causal factors behind drug abuse, drug misuse, whichever is the way that we'd like to address it. Um, So I thought maybe we'd do a podcast on drugs, which of course means that we wouldn't be on drugs doing a podcast. (laughs) But uh, that would be our topic of conversation. Now, the particular article was by Johan Hari, who wrote a book called Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. I I actually heard him speak. He was interviewed by John Safran. Mm. Um, And very, very intriguing uh, man to listen to. And um, I think I'm going to have a read of his book. But he wrote this article. Um, which I also uh, thought you'd have a look at. Yes. Um, And it speaks to some very interesting principles that although it didn't speak directly to developmental trauma, we can draw some inferences in that. Mm. As as with many things, um, in terms of the links with developmental trauma, Mm. sometimes you have to draw bridges or join dots. I always talk about joining the dots because in my mind I see it like one of those puzzles that you used to have in children's books where you have a series of numbers and unless you 
jo- uh, sorry, a series of points. Yeah, yeah. And unless you join them in the correct way, the picture makes no sense. Mm. But if you join them in the correct way, you see the picture and it all becomes clear. So nice. I like to think about it as joining the dots. And joining the dots across paradigms is often necessary. Nice analogy. Did I, you like, I like that? It. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Hari actually brings up a, a point which is actually a now old experiment. Mm. Um, yes, because from, it was from, from the seventies. Done in um, uh, in the seventies. Yeah, that's right. some work that was yeah. done with some rats um, back in the day, where psychology research was mainly centred on animals. Mainly done with rats, really, yeah. <laughs> yes. as B.F. Skinner <laughs> would attest. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but this particular experiment looked at um, rats who had the option of taking water that was either I think it was laced with heroin. It was laced with cocaine, in fact. And he talks about in the article um, how it was used um, initially to make an anti-cocaine advert. Right, right. An advert against drug addiction. Um, And you put a rat in a cage alone with two water bottles. One is laced with heroin or cocaine and the other is is just water. And, you know, what it said was that the rat became obsessed with the drugged water and kept coming back for more and more and more until it died. And then the advert said only one drug is so addictive, nine out of ten laboratory rats will use it and use it and use it until dead. It's called cocaine, and it can do the same thing to you. Yeah. Yep. But there was an interesting anomaly that came up when mm. the experiment was redone, wasn't mm. it? When they introduced something, which was... Mm. Uh, now, was, was it Bruce Alexander? Yes, who, well, Bruce Alexander noticed something that mm-hmm. was odd about the experiment because the rat was put in the cage all alone, and it has nothing else to do but mm-hmm. take the drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wondered what would happen if it were tried differently. And this is always, you know, the again, goes back to my analogy about joining the dots. People who might think outside the square a bit and say, oh, what might happen if you try this? So what he did was he built Rat Park. That's yep. what he called it. Yep. Um, and it was a really beautiful cage where rats had different coloured balls to play with and the best rat food in town from um, Maxim's Rat Restaurant. <laughs> like the um, ultimate rat The ultimate rat make. food. Yep. They had plenty of tunnels to scamper up and down and plenty of friends. Everything that a rat about town, as the article says, could want. And he wanted to know what will happen then. Now, in Rat Park, which was a beautiful environment, yep. all the rats obviously tried both water bottles because they didn't know what was in them, but what happened next is the interesting bit mm-hmm. because the rats with good lives didn't like the drugged water. Not at all. They, they mostly feel, shunned it. They didn't feel compelled to have it. They did not feel compelled to have it. They shunned it. They con- consumed less than a quarter mm-hmm. of the drugs that the isolated rats used. So they None of them died. The, the article talks about this concept of a good cage and a bad cage. Exactly. None of them died, mm. while all the rats who were alone and unhappy became very heavy users. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, none of the rats who had a happy environment became heavy users at all, which is quite fascinating. So firstly, yeah, the, the first point that we need to gather from that is this idea that the problem the the only problem because we you know these are all parts of the problem the actual substance is part of the problem absolutely but the focus even since this experiment the focus has always been what is the problem the problem is the drug itself exactly. and the physical addiction yeah and the element of choice mm-hmm. that the user has yeah, yeah. about managing their addiction yes uh, and this gets back to something that I'm constantly banging on about yeah. Um, that's when I'm not banging on about joining the dots. Yes. But what I have thought for a long, long time is that in our efforts, our good efforts and our well-intentioned efforts to offer help to people who are clearly in trouble, we often mistake effects for causes. And one of the problems of mistaking effects for causes is that when you apply the solutions to the effects, they actually don't work. And I think if you looked across time, I haven't done a study, and this is a very big statement for someone who hasn't. Well, it's a fair prediction. It's a fair someone prediction. Someone out there mm. can, can study it. And someone can disagree with me if they want, but I think if you looked across time, you'd have to say that the if the results of most of our effect-focused interventions towards drug addiction have not been brilliantly successful. And is this not how... I mean, this is what we were saying about violence. It it is, in our very first podcast. Yep, in in episode number one. That we need to look at the causes rather than the effects. Now, you know, there might be some political reasons why we actually don't go looking for the causes because I think that often... People think that to address the causes is A, impossible, or probably a subset of A, too expensive. Or sometimes people have a judgment on, uh, you know, the, the, the person the, involved. Yeah, the moral and issues, And they're saying, yeah. oh, they don't deserve it. Yes. They don't deserve That's this right, approach but, or that approach because they're bad people. Yes, yeah. and, and it goes to the same kind of misunderstanding that often occurs when you're working with kids who have experienced trauma, who many people want to punish because their effect is they do bad things. Yeah, they might be violent or... Mm. Um, they steal. Yep. They, Damaging property. Yeah, they do all those sorts of things as an effect mm-hmm. of trauma they've experienced. Bruce Perry is very clear that until children who've experienced trauma feel loved and valued... They will never change. And what he says very clearly in a lot of his writing, but most particularly in the book The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, is that traumatised children need services that help them to feel loved and valued. Mm -hmm. And a lot of services get that back to front. What they apply is, and I think the same applies to this question of drug addiction, they are... Uh, there's a sort of an attempt to lure them into compliance Mm -hmm. and to assist them to make decisions about compliance. Sadly, if only it were that easy. Yeah, just just make good choices, they say. All you have to do is make good choices. If only it were that easy. And all of the newly understood information about trauma 
helps us to see, again, if we join the dots correctly, helps us to see that these children and also adults Mm -hmm. who are locked into uh, a system of drug abuse as an effect can't change without significant help to have a better cage. Mm. And, well, you know, child trauma isn't just about children. It's actually mm. childhood trauma. Exactly. So, you know, anybody at, Absolutely. at any age. Well, but, I mean, how, how are we drawing an inference between the mm. rats and the cage and developmental mm. trauma and early childhood experiences? Because I notice in the article he talks about that around the same time, mm. I think he, he calls it, a, you know, a, a parallel human experiment yes. called the Vietnam War. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that um, he cites is that soldiers in Vietnam who went there as young adults, mm-hmm. were, there was, he, I think he says there was uh, so much heroin around for soldiers in Vietnam, it was, quote, as common as chewing gum. Close quotes. Um, And that about 20% of US soldiers became addicted to heroin there. Um, And that was a study published in the Archives of General Psychiatry in the States. But interestingly enough, 95% of those addicted soldiers completely recovered. They just stopped. When they, got they, home. they didn't need any rehab. They needed they, no rehab. They, but, well, very few had rehab. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. So they've returned. They to, came back from a better cage. They've returned to their good yeah. cage yeah. from a terrifying, awful and awful, one. and horrendous cage of war. Mm. But they, they've re- the the point is, I think here is that they've returned to a good cage. And if you've mm. got a good cage at home, yeah. then what are the chances mm. that you've actually developed mm. in your early childhood? You've developed in a way, and you've got the right environment mm. to actually move on and, and have that right mm. cage. Especially Absolutely. a young man returning from war yeah. is most likely have returned back to the family home. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's a good cage, then mm. it's going to be what is going to be nurturing. Mm. It's going to be safe. Mm. It's going to be stimulating in the right way mm. in terms of enriching in, a, in the mm. right ways. Mm. Um, and it's not chaotic or neglectful no. or missing altogether. And most importantly, it was like that before he went. Exactly. I mean, the, <laughs> That's the where main he grew point up. Is yeah. The main point is, is returning yeah. to that. So exactly. if, he's, if he's gone from there yeah. as, a, as a very young man or, mm. or a boy mm. and returned to there, chances are, yes, Absolutely. That, that was the hope. And joining the dots again, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that um, Bruce Perry talks about a lot. Um, and there's um, a quote that I often quote in training where he says that developmental trauma in a baby organises the developing brain. It becomes the organising environment for the brain of that baby. Where And that's um, what we know as resulting in developmental yeah. trauma if the experiences are poor or chaotic or terrorising. In very early childhood. In very early infancy and sometimes in utero. Yeah. Whereas when a full, fully developed and organised brain... Um, of a person who, like you know, the article says, went to Vietnam from a good family, a sound environment, a really lovely rat park. Um, when that person goes into a traumatic situation, they will experience trauma, but they will recover 
effectively because it only has an impact on an already organized brain. So if the if the brain was organized well and that person didn't grow up in a chaotic environment, then ultimately when they return to that positive environment, everything should be fine. And as the facts show, that was true. And the chances are that the type of post-traumatic stress mm. that, they, that they'll experience, they'll be able to engage in cognitive type therapies because yes. they've they've got a well organized yeah. brains and we we can do yeah, that exactly we can do that so exactly they're, they're able to actually think about mm. what they're feeling yep. and how it's, it's changing their behavior That's and what right. they're thinking and yeah. be able to reorder it exactly yeah exactly and that goes to joining some more dots um what the trauma specialist lenore Tur termed as type 1 trauma and type 2 trauma and um, that makes the entire difference. Interestingly again talking about developmental trauma as a predictor of difficulty. um, I was driving to work and you know just happened to be listening to I think it was Radio National uh, and heard a woman called Dr Catherine Mills who is the CEO of the New South Wales Drug and Alcohol Foundation. Now, I heard this probably a couple of years ago now. They had done a study of their client group. I think it was a two-year study, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, And their study showed that somewhere between 85 and 95% of their current clients over that period of time had experienced unresolved childhood trauma. Wow. So these were adult mm-hmm. substance abusers of one form or another. That's a very high statistic. It, it's it, it's pretty strong it evidence is. for what what we're saying for, yeah. for this premise, yeah. isn't it? And and interestingly, they had a service user being interviewed in that um, mm-hmm. segment, and that service user was someone who had become hooked on prescription drugs. But one of the things that she said was that they were a fantastic service um, and they worked very hard to try and get her to change. But as a result of the study that they had done, when they, they started to alter their approach from one that was very cognitive to one that was much more Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. trauma-informed. And she said, she's an intelligent woman, she said, no matter what I did, there was still a gap in the connection between thinking about it and doing it. Yeah. And nothing that she did, in fact, made a difference until they started to approach it in a different way. And she was a really interesting service user because she was quite insightful. And she, she, with all of her insight, she was still able to say, I don't know why, but it felt different. I- interesting. And interesting, like we were saying at the beginning, mm. that we still have, the, in general, I mm. think things are changing, but in general, there mm. is an approach to drug addiction that um, really focuses on the substance mm. and it focuses on the person making the right choices. Uh, and, you know, it's, in, in a way it's kind of patronising because obviously they know it's not the best yeah. choice and yeah. yet they're still doing it. Exactly. Now, obviously what we're saying isn't something that applies for everything. It's mm. not the, 
you know, it's not the answer to all things. But there is a piece of the puzzle here, mm. once again, that's missing. Mm. And, and that is lo- looking at that developmental stages of life and how they might contribute yeah. to, um, to, to drug abuse. So it's... Um, you know, in a similar way, when we look at some of the work by people like Bruce Perry, like you mentioned, who talk about the development, the, you know, how we develop the capacity to self-soothe. Mm. Of course, people think mistakenly mm. that a baby develops the capacity to self-soothe by just being left alone mm. and to cry it out. Mm. And I think that that's going to be a topic and that's another, another one. That is another one. <laughs> but we know. It's another day. We know how we develop the capacity to mm. self-soothe. We develop it by being soothed. Yes, because so, otherwise, how do we know it, what it feels like? Exactly, mm. exactly. And so the, the idea there is that if we are not sufficiently soothed and if we don't experience that and actually don't develop mm. that, you know, neurobiologically don't develop the capacity mm. to soothe ourselves which interestingly um, is connected to what they call the pleasure centres of, yes. of the brain. And the pleasure centres of the brain is, is a, that part of the brain which is activated mm. when you get a cuddle. Mm. And it's chemicals. It, it, it isn't some sort of amorphous feeling. No, no. no. It yes. is actually chemicals that become activated by the connection of a, an infant's eyes with a known carer and a circular uh, recursive yeah. experience that goes between mother, father, grandmother, auntie, but a known person and that baby. Now, incidentally, I yeah. believe that the pleasure centres in the brain are also activated not only when we yeah. get cuddles, yeah. but they're also activated when we have sugar and salt and and, and cocaine, yeah. incidentally, yeah. going back to the rats. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, if we haven't had the, if we, if we don't have the capacity to self-soothe, mm. and then one day we have this substance, mm. which actually gives us a feeling of being mm. soothed because the same part of the brain is activated, mm. then of course we're going to want that feeling. Absolutely. Because it's a way that we can control mm our internal chaos. We yes. can control it by, in a way, it's it's why they call it maladaptive self-soothing because it's a kind of self-soothing which ultimately isn't healthy, that no. ultimately will decrease our life opportunities. Exactly. So. Um, but that's that goes to logic. Yeah. Whereas the underlying mm. functionality of that, pers- that individual's brain is not being uh, exactly. grounded in logic at that moment. It, it's, we will have the desperateness to be soothed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, you know, and, and to feel good. And in pain, yeah. what, what, that's what we want yeah. when we're in pain. To feel good, which is where the whole concept of self-medicating comes in. Mm. And a lot, as we know, a lot of people who are traumatised in early life self-medicate all the time. And again, it is not the self-medication which is the effect that we actually have to address if those people are to heal and stop using drugs. It's the cause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, this speaks to, you know, what what do we do now? We've Mm. had this model Mm. of addressing uh, substance use. Mm. And 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 there's a lot invested in it. Oh, there's so much (laughs) invested in it, you know, politically and financially. And so 
you know, what does this all say about uh, that and about what our approaches need to be? Well, I think even, um, well, not more importantly perhaps, but equally there are ideological views invested in it. Mm-hmm. And it's been my experience over particularly the last 10 to 12 years with all the influx of new knowledge about the impacts of developmental trauma that perhaps the ideological investment is the hardest to change. Oh, absolutely. Because people become wedded to ways of thinking, whether they're successful or not. And they will stand by that ideology Mm. Mm. no matter what, Mm. um, because you're really dealing with people's own belief systems. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm talking about policymakers now, not not drug users. Uh, You know, they they have their own personal ideology. Absolutely. And that you know that might become threatened, given uh, some evidence. Absolutely, <laughs> and and it's easy for us to say, not just you and I, Stefan, mm-hmm. but all of us, yeah. to say, oh, it's about money, and and to some extent, I think it is about money, because I think for people who are funders, it seems enormous to contemplate how would you change the system to deal with the the cause rather than the effect. It feels massive, enormous. Would you build enormous rat parks <laughs> full of coloured balls? You know, of course I make a metaphor there, but it is quite hard to imagine how one would shift yeah. resources from yeah. one place to another. Yeah. But yeah. there's also an ideology to shift as well. Yeah. And I think it's easy to say, oh, it's too expensive and there are, political yeah. interests and that's why it doesn't but happen. That's not the but it's obstacle. not mm. all about that. It's not the biggest obstacle. Mm. I'd love to see a system, I would love to see a system where the dots were joined correctly to show the right picture in the children's storybook mm-hmm. and we actually really started to deal with causes rather than effects. It would revolutionise child protection and how child protection deals with the children of addicts, who of course then often become addicts for the same set of reasons as we've already discussed. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes that's even worse because their parents provide an even more greatly impoverished and chaotic environment for them to live in. Um, So I'd love to see that, but I don't know how we would do it. Well, I think it's like we, we, with all these things, we can't ignore the evidence mm. that we have. And I think people often, when we talk about ideology, there's a lot of ideology out there that is actually just dressed up as science. There's no real mm. evidence behind it. It's mm. ideology. It's mm. what we've always done or how mm. we think or how we think. What we think being good is mm. being and good it's to the, someone. They're compassionate ideologies. Absolutely. The intent is there. Excellent no places. Doubt. I mean, yeah. I've had to change about, you know, mm. lots of things about the, the way mm. I think. Mm. Me too. Lots of ideas I've held on to, and yes. I, in the end I thought, look, I, I actually I need to go with the evidence. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, we've actually got enough evidence now, and mm. we've got enough theory to build a framework mm. there. And from that, mm. I've no doubt that we can get together mm. and turn that theory into practice, integrate it into what we do, not only what we know. Mm. Because right now we've got two different things happening. We've got one house that has in it what we do 
and one that has in it what we know, mm. and that actually they're not the same house. They're not the same house. <laughs> um, and I find it interesting, you, you know, you talk about the time for change, but here is Bruce Alexander who did this experiment in the 70s. Wow. Now, here's a man who was obviously quite good at joining the dots across paradigms and decided to try this experiment because of that. But for some reason, who knows mm-hmm. what reason, the results of his study have actually not become widely known. Why, why were they lost? You know, and I think it's what I don't you're know. talking about. It's hmm. that's, they get, it drowns in that sea of ideology. Yes. It didn't quite fit yeah. what the original experiment was about, mm. which was to confirm mm. what we think we know. Mm. And so it's an anomaly and something that is kind of uncomfortable. Well, it is. Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me also very clear the level of effort required Mm, mm, mm. to ensure that change flows from new knowledge. And it's something really that I've been chronically aware of probably for about the past 12 years that we haven't, we have to a certain extent, but we haven't fully ensured that with all of our new knowledge about developmental trauma. We haven't yet. We're getting there. Yes, we are. Well, I, do you think we've thrown out another spanner? Well, I think, I think we've <laughs> thrown out something controversial, which is always our intention. It's not that controversial. It's not, it's not designed it's just... to be controversial just for the sake of being controversial. We really believe this. Yeah. And I would really like to um, put it out there in people's thinking that we need to very, very much stop mistaking effects for causes if we're going to actually see any appreciable change and healing in many of the people in our society who are very deeply troubled and about whom people very rarely think until they intersect with their own lives. So somebody burgles your house because they want money for drugs, all of a sudden it becomes a very pressing issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when they're over there sitting, you know, somewhere yeah. in St Kilda, not troubling me, not holding me up in the street, uh, that's where people become quite distanced from the reality and that's where part of the social impetus kind of slows down and becomes lacking. If people understood the link between social capital and the development of social capital and all of these problems, the community would have a a bigger voice in some of these things. Absolutely. Even if if only we understood. Actually, even people talk about the evils of economic rationalism. Mm. Understand the Mm. economic Mm. ramifications. Absolutely of dealing with it in the right way. But yeah. what, what I like out of that is what you said about not, mis- you know, we need to stop mistaking causes for effects. I, you've said it in yeah. previous podcasts, yeah. and I think that that's a good, yeah. strong message. I think that's, that's I a, think it's a, really a good, yeah. good spot for us it's to It's a good up. spot to finish. <laughs> effects will never lead us to a solution. Only finding the causes will. And on that... I'll stop banging on. <laughs> I think it was worthwhile. It, it was a good worthwhile. bang on. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It's been a very interesting, um, it was very interesting reading that article. Yeah. And I encourage people to access it, 
think it's going to be accessible through our website. Is that yes, right? Yes, we'll, we'll put it on. Yep. Uh, well, well, actually, we'll put a link to it yep. up on our Facebook, mm. and there will also be a link in there to Hari's book. Yes. Um, and uh, and I think it'll be worthwhile purchasing a copy. I think yeah. we'll do that as yep. well. Excellent. Thank you very All much. All right. Thank chat. you, everyone. We'll talk next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.